Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. We haven't done anything yet. Gosh, that's amazing. Thank you for that. Um, (laughs) Hello and welcome to the 2022 Sydney Writers' Festival. Uh, It's been a big 24 hours, hasn't it? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Wow. It's a a new Australia that we wake up to today. Um, So my name is Sarah Malik, and I'm your host for today. Um, And I'm delighted to welcome you here um, today um, with two really great authors whose books have really been in my mind and heart for the last few weeks. Um, Look, it has been an intense 24 hours in the world, (laughs) in the election and in Australia. Um, And it's really just such a pleasure to be talking about I guess all the themes that have been kind of political conversation for the past few decades, um, but with what George and Omar do is bringing those themes like race and immigration and family and religion and Western Sydney, you know, right into the macro, uh, into the micro and how it affects us in our day-to-day lives. Um, So I'm just really excited and pleased to be here with George and Omar um, uh, to talk about all these juicy themes. Um, and I would like to, I guess, begin by first acknowledging uh, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, <clears throat> the traditional custodians of this land, and pay my respects to elders, past, present, and emerging. Um, so I'd like to introduce my guests. Um, so George Haddad. Um, George Haddad is a writer and artist practicing on Gadigal land. Um, his work explores identity and the limitations of language. Um, In 2016, he won the Viva La Novella Prize for his first book, Populate and Perish. And in 2018, he won the Neilma Sydney Prize for his short story, Catharsis. Um, George is a doctoral candidate and sessional tutor at the Writing and Society Research Centre at Western Sydney University. Um, And his new novel, Losing Face, is out now. (laughs) Um, Omar. um, Yes, yes. Um, Omar Saka. Um, So Omar is the author of two poetry collections, most recently The Lost Arabs, which won the 2020 Prime Minister's Literary Award for Poetry. Um, Incredible. Yes. Um, And he's the first Arab-Australian Muslim author to win this prestigious prize. Um, so his debut novel, Son of Sin, is out now. So please also buy that. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm such a fan of these too. So it's actually just such a pleasure. Um, so George, I'm just going to begin with you. Um, you know, so you know your protagonist, Joey. You know, he's a mixed race Arab Anglo teen from Western Sydney, and he finds himself a bystander um, at the scene of a sexual assault, um, and then navigating the criminal justice system. And, you know, it's such a, I guess, potentially risky subject matter to approach, um, you know, exploring, and, and you do it so beautifully, you know, exploring misogyny and peer pressure and these threads that bind Joey. Did it worry you um, how to tackle this risky subject matter? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I kind of struggled with uh, thinking about how to write about that scene from the perspective of a perpetrator, uh, because essentially it diminishes the victim or the survivor's voice. Uh, so it was, yeah, really tough for me to kind of navigate that uh, while still trying to write about those topics and those themes. 
but in the end, I think what I'm trying to write is a kind of nuanced understanding on that traumatic uh, event and on that kind of violence uh, and to also start a conversation about what it means to be involved with uh, that kind of crime but not essentially, uh, you know, partake in it but also not to prevent it from happening. Uh, there's something in Joey's apathy or kind of weakness in that scene uh, that I think speaks to a wider cultural uh, practice of, of, you know, things happening and us not doing anything to prevent them from happening. Yeah, yeah. And why did you want to tackle this particular subject? Uh, it's such a tough question to answer because um, it, I feel like it kind of just, uh, it, it went that way when I was writing these characters in this, in this story. I, I knew that it had to, uh, revolve around something that thawed this kind of subject out. Uh, and I think it's important that uh, we shed light on that, and especially after uh, the kind of last few years that we've had uh, with, you know, survivors being able to, to speak up and, and have that space. Uh, I think that would have informed my writing as well and, and what I wanted to write about. Yeah. Um, and going to you, Omar, um, you know, I think about certain authors um, and there's certain themes that they go back to in their work. You know, Min Jin Lee, it's class. For Alice Pong, it's mothers and daughters. And, you know, for you, you know, your book, um, it traces the story of, of Jamal, who is this bisexual young Lebanese-Turkish man who is from Western Sydney. He's torn between faith and fear and gossip and um, family, and he's coming to terms with his sexual identity. Um, and it's, it's almost a visceral book. Like, I felt like I could taste it, I could smell it, I could, you know, um, uh, really feel it. Um, and it kind of existed here and not here. Um, and I guess the body features really heavily in your work, you know, like its needs, its desires, its hungers, um, you know, from abstaining um, from food and water during Ramadan to the thirst and hunger for touch, you know, and, and sex is so explicit in the book too. Um, I guess what is it about the body that fascinates you so much? Mm. Um, well, first of all, I live in it. Uh, it's hard to escape. In the, on the one hand. <laughs> um, but on the other, you know, I have ADHD and I've struggled for most of my life with uh, depression and anxiety and I've gone through many a traumatic experience where it became... Uh, it started to happen more and more where I was no longer present in my body. Uh, and so when I'm writing, I attend to the body, right? Uh, first and foremost, uh, as a way of kind of reclaiming it. Um, because there is just so much that I retreat from or have retreated from. And then as well, as a Muslim growing up, where you have Ramadan is such a big part of our culture um, and our faith, and it is all about uh, repressing 
right? Repressing the natural desires of the body. Um, and if you're poor as well, then you have this, uh, that's kind of all throughout your life, <laughs> where you don't get to have what you want. Um, and so I think that that's just a tension uh, that's been present in my life for a long time, and it's, so it's something that I, I return to in my writing. Um, and, you know, I wasn't surprised to see that you, George, uh, were writing about the subjects you were writing about, like, it made complete sense to me um, because those are the circumstances and scenarios uh, and the people that we grew up with. Uh, we also grew up in a time and uh, under a narrative of demonization which tried to tell us that we were predators sexual predators um, from the start, right? Uh, and to approach our desires with suspicion and fear. Um, and so I think this is something that George does brilliantly in his book, you know, is to showcase that pressure and that fear that a group of boys can um, instill on each other, right? Um. Yeah, brilliant. I mean, and I think that we all grew up in a particular era, um, the 1990s and the early noughties. Um, I remember, um, George, you know, the Sydney gang rapes um, and Cronulla riots were a part of our coming of age. Um, and the rape trials in general what happened in the aftermath of that was you did have a whole generational class of people, you know, Arab men, Muslim men, who were demonised in the media as gangsters and as predators. And I was wondering if that was part of your consciousness as you wrote the book. Well, I think, I mean, it's, it's fairly obvious that there's an absolute correlation between uh, that kind of media furor around the Sydney gang rapes and what happens in Losing Face. Uh, and like Omar said, we were, um, you know, typecast. We were looked at differently. And I think it was the first time in my life as a kind of teenager at the time that I was conscious and aware of my ethnicity as being something other than, uh, you know, just who I was. Uh, it was something that could be scrutinized, something that could be labeled, something that could be... Uh, you know, th thought about and, and, and paraded and uh, unpacked in, in a very public way. Uh, and that was kind of traumatic. Yeah. And while it's, while it's a particular local example, uh, this is a narrative that is hundreds of years old. You know, in Orientalism, uh, he goes back hundreds of years and there's always this portrayal of the Arab man as uncontrollably sexual, uh, lascivious, uh, you know, and uh, a, a predator uh, who will steal your women. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm, I was very conscious of, of how radical your books were in the context of that. 
Um, and I guess also I wanted to ask, you know, I, I, I grew up in Western Sydney um, and Western Sydney is almost a third character in your books. Um, and it's so powerful for me to see that, to read that when I'd never seen literature set in this scene, you know, from the Abu Salim supermarket, you know, um, in your book, George, to, you know, Omar, you know, hanging out at Macca's and making out in cars because everyone lives with their parents. <laughs> Um, and it's, it's a world I've never really seen reflected in literature. Um, I was wondering what it was like for you both to, to paint those scenes of the worlds that you knew so intimately. Uh, I mean, that's, that's what we know. Um, and Omar was saying this earlier, that we're writing about the kind of interiors and the spaces that we, we know and understand and have lived in uh, and have kind of spilled ourselves out into. And so it's... Uh, you know, it, it might be interesting for people to read that, but it's not that kind of wild for us to write about it because you know it's it's what we it's what we know and what we what we breathe. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. I, it, it's not that we're the first writing it. Um, you know, there are writers before us um, who have done it. Even you know, making out in cars because you can't be at home because of your parents. Um, Lubna Haikal. Uh, you know, did this in her book uh, in like 2003, I think. Um, shout out to Lubna Haikal. Uh, <laughs> no one knows or remembers, sadly. But um, yeah, I think it's just, this is our world. Um, and it, I don't even think it would matter if uh, it was a world that was kind of well-known um, we would still write it because it's what we love. Because uh, I wonder if not seeing your life or your world reflected, just to know that your world was valuable and that was something that had literary merit, I was wondering when did that become part of your consciousness? I think um, I'd always known that uh, that kind of space and, and the, the worlds that I lived in were always valuable. Um, so I never felt like, I mean, to me at least, um, uh, I never felt like uh, I had to do anything to celebrate it or I wasn't writing or I'm not writing about these spaces so that, you know, we shed light on, on Western Sydney. Uh, but I completely forgot what your question was now. <laughs> you just realised, hey, there's some stories here, you know. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, again, it's just, it's in our bodies. Like it's, it's, it's not a conscious, it's not a conscious thing for me. Yeah. Um, there is a sense in me that because there's such a prevailing narrative about uh, my culture and communities, uh, queer, Arab, Muslim, um, I do feel a need to write a different story um, because the story that's being told sucks. <laughs> it's, 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 it's just inhuman. We're not allowed to be our full, complex, flawed selves. So it's not about writing a pleasant story. Anyone who reads anything I write knows. <laughs> Please. You know, I've, I've never written a happy story or, or poem. Um, so, but it's about showing all the people in my world 
uh, at their most complex and beautiful. And so this is something that we're not allowed. I do feel the need um, to be the storyteller our community deserves, but also every single Arab will tell you that he's a poet. <laughs> every single Arab will tell you that their life is the life that should be written about. That's the novel you should be telling. You'll make a million dollars. Um, and so as far as this sense of like, uh, are our stories valuable or interesting or whatever, like, Ego-wise, we're good, you know, yeah, like yeah. we, we got it. 100%, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I guess one thing which I loved in both your books, um, you know, jinns feature in your books, you know, the, these supernatural spirits who exist in this parallel world to humans and can take on human form. Um, and they're a big part of the Arab, you know, myth and storytelling tradition. Um, and their inclusion gives the books this kind of, like, magic realism quality like it's just it's beautiful um and I was wondering you know, what was the the thought process around that and having that as part of your book you want to go first Emma? sure um I'm Muslim and we believe that we believe in angels and uh the shaitan as literal figures and also that there is a third race called jinn, um, who are like humans in that they have free will, right? So angels don't have free will, um, but the jinn do, and they can interact with our world. Um, and this is a really fucking terrifying thing to tell children, <laughs> um, that there are <laughs> invisible creatures that can interact with you or possess you or just fuck with you for the fun of it. Um, and so it's been a really scary presence in my life um, growing up. So yeah, it was just about trying, I, I see the novel as an attempt to show you a consciousness, right? Show you the, the landscape of a mind. Um, and if I'm showing you a queer Arab Muslim mind in Western Sydney, I can't do that without showing you the jinn. Mm. Uh, my family are from a tiny little village in the north of Lebanon uh, and it neighbours uh, another tiny little uh, Muslim village and they have an amazing relationship with each other. My grandfather, my mum's father, um, grew up with Muslims uh, and so we have a lot of kind of, uh, we've adopted some of the uh, stories from them, um, namely the jinn and one of the women from our village um, speaks to the jinn uh, and she was a great aunt of my mother's uh, and we kind of have all these other incredible weird supernatural things that we do uh, like to break the evil eye and uh, to uh, just read how you've kind of been um, put under a spell. Um, so all of these things completely informed my upbringing. Um, if someone had a fever before we took Panamax, mum would melt uh, a lead. lead. <laughs> mum would melt lead in a spoon, hold a bowl of water over your head, everyone would have to be quiet, and then as she tipped the melting lead into the water, everyone would have to go, <gasps> hold their breath, 
the lead would land in the water and then the form that it created was the person who put the fever on you essentially. Wow, oh. gosh, it's amazing. Um, and I love how that consciousness is just embedded through your book, um, through your books. It's a joy to read that um, because I think, you know, so many, you know, Western white writers, there's a real rationalist framework behind their books. And so just to have, you know, that embedded in your books, that, that cultural perspective, you know, um, is just incredible. Um, and for me, who grew up with gin stories too, <laughs> I, just, I just love that. Um, but, um, you know, both of your books feature, I guess, young men in crisis. Um, and so much of that crisis is because not only are they outsiders in white Australia, you know, they're also outsiders because, you know, their sexuality is this big taboo. Um, and especially in this kind of cis, het, macho world of young lads they grow up with, you know, where, you know, it's sexual conquest of young women is, is basically the, the kind of cultural code, you know, it's this unwritten cultural code. Um, and, you know, Joey has a queer consciousness that he can't really name. Um, and Jamal is made to feel monstrous, you know, for loving men. Um, and breaking this masculine code, I guess, gives them this kind of outsider sensibility, um, and it creates a lot of pain for them too. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering how much of this code was something you both observed or mirrored some of your own experiences. Mm. Um, well, all of it, really. Uh, and not just at home either, you know. So in big gatherings at home, the women would sit together inside and the men would be outside um, smoking, thinking that this arrangement was uh, something that they had engineered when in fact it was the women who had made sure that they were out of the way. <laughs> um, and I loved being able to sit with the women and because I was, when I'm reading, I'm, I, was, I would somehow become invisible to the family and they just allowed me to stay inside. And so I got to see the fact that, uh, you know, the women were having the best time uh, and really just kind of <laughs> uh, set, set things up in such a way uh, as, to, as to benefit them. Um, but also then I went to Liverpool Boys, right? An old boys school. And this is a thing that just should not exist. Uh, in, my, in my opinion, this, this same gender school nonsense, it's, it's got to go. Um, because it's, it's so damaging. It warps uh, your sense of self. It uh, diminishes your ability to see each other as people, right? You were talking about this hyper-masculine, like uh, it's all about conquest. Um, you can only see the girls as objects. You're not with them on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and you're kind of always amping up the worst aspects uh, of yourselves. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big problem, I think, in our society and in our culture. Um, you do learn these codes very early on um, and you witness people be punished for transgressing um, against them. Uh, I remember my mom hitting me because I was carrying a handbag that I had bought for her, um, for example. And so it's not just the violence that's 
enacted by men on men. Uh, it is a violence that is also upheld by women. Um, George, I was wondering if that also resonated, the, the idea of the code and, and you observing that, that code. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Omar's experience is very, very similar to my own. I spent most of my time hanging out with the women in the family. Um, but, you know, mum never said, you got to go play with the boys or you got to go sit with the men. Um, you know, she was quite encouraging and just letting me chill with them. And it gave me access to women in a completely different way. Uh, and so by the time I went to an all boys high school, I hadn't spent any time with men. Like it was a completely jarring experience uh, and it silenced me. It, um, I felt completely silenced. Like I, I didn't have the kind of tools or the language to navigate that space around those men. Uh, and so then I kind of, uh, I, I had this facade of being a clown or, you know, I would uh, retreat and be quiet and, and not really partake uh, in all the hyper-masculine things that everyone else was doing. But I found ways of, you know, uh, or, or excuses to make as to why I was that way. Uh, and, and people were happy to hear those excuses because if I had said, actually, I'm a raging fag, then they would have been like, um, yeah, you're, you can't sit with us. Yeah. 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 100%. Um, I, also, like, as much as there is a masculine code, what I love about your books is that they show that there is an, also a vulnerability, you know, to the worlds of these young men. And a lot of that bravado is almost a front, you know. It's a front for these young kids who are so policed and so adultized, you know, um, in, in their sometimes very awful encounters with police in ways that are really scary and traumatic. Um, and so I think that's really powerful that you show both, you know, a critique of toxic masculinity, but also the vulnerability of these young men as well. Um, I guess how important was it for you to depict that, that kind of dual reality? Yeah, yeah, something happens when we all, when we enter a public space, mm -hmm. um, you know, it always stuck in my mind that all the boys I grew up with, when we were together, would make jokes about me being a bookworm, for example, right? Um, because even reading books is gay. Um, and so they would make those jokes and, you know, all, all the rest of it. But every single one of them, and these are guys who, you know, some of them are dead now, and some of them are in jail, and they were hardened by the place we grew up in and the things that we experienced. But every single one of them, when we were one-on-one, -on -one, made sure to tell me never to stop reading. Wow. Every single one of them was like, don't stop, bro. Like, <laughs> if I could do it, if I could read, I would. <laughs> if I could just sit there, bro, if I could do what you do, fire your brain. Get out of here, man. Like that. And <laughs> uh, God love them, right? They would show me, right? They'd been taught to think this way about themselves, that mm. they were no good, that they couldn't be 
in school, that they couldn't read and so on and so forth. But they saw me doing it and they wanted to protect me. Um, and so I think about this a lot in terms of social media as well and how we perform because it's a public space and it's always like the worst part of us that's coming to the fore because we think that that's what is expected of us um, in our various roles. And I just think it's incredibly important um, to not be a dick uh, <laughs> and to be vulnerable uh, and to allow everyone really to connect with you. Yeah. Does that resonate, George, for you as well? Joey does struggle with this performance of masculinity, but mm -hmm. there's such a deep vulnerability and fear that he experiences as he is trying to, you know, fit into these worlds and also, um, I guess, get along. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, uh, very similar to my own experience and to what Omar was uh, kind of mentioning as well. Joey has access to these men in their vulnerable states. Yes, they're hardened. Yes, they are completely, uh, you know, operating on bravado in public spaces. Uh, but, you know, you put them in a garage with an Xbox and they're lying all over each other and caressing each other's faces. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, that's exactly what I saw. That's what I experienced is that there is that capability for vulnerability. They do have that in them, but the way that we're expected to interact with the world around us is or doesn't uh, kind of allow for that to, to leak out of the, the garage. Yeah, because often these, these kids are trying to survive some pretty tough environments, you know, where they're being policed so heavily. So, um, yeah, thank you. I think as novelists to be able to unpack those deeper truths, it's, it's really powerful, you know, like our public selves and our private selves. Um, I guess, Omar, going to you, um, sex and religion, <laughs> you know, these are hot topics, you know, for, for any dinner table. Um, and they almost go underground because of that kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot, you know, for people to deal with. But it's, they, they form part of Jamal's almost every waking moment, you know. Um, and, you know, religion is such a big part of Jamal's consciousness from, you know, the Laylatul Qadr kind of, you know, the, the, the night of power, the opening, and the fridge magnet, which says, you know, say this 99 times and you'll go to heaven. He's <laughs> like, I need to say this passage. Um, and I actually wanted to read a passage, if that's all right, from your yeah, book, sure. which I thought really encapsulated, you know, Jamal's conflict. Um, he tried to soak up as much knowledge as he could to follow the right rules, but there were no guarantees and every day there was something new he had to be, do to be spared the unimaginable torment, eternities of hellfire. It was haram to eat pork, to drink alcohol, to do drugs, to be with girls before marriage, to speak back to your mother, to disobey your elders, to listen to music, to piss while standing up, to leave shoes on their side up, their dirty souls facing God. Each year it grew and grew, this tree of sin, crowned by the ultimate taboo, that no boy should love another boy, that no girl should love another girl. Gosh, <laughs> what was it like tackling those very big controversial themes? I mean, I always say when I'm asked questions like this, you know, it was harder to live than to write. <laughs> so uh, actually, it was fine to write it. Um, harder to live it and 
like I said before, you know, there are these restrictions. There's so many restrictions. Uh, and, and I know that sounded like a long list when it was read out, but, like, it's really short compared to, <laughs> compared to what the full thing is that you get when you're growing up. Um, not many people know about the pissing while standing up, though, so I put that in there. Um, and it's really interesting I think, watching everyone break these rules mm. growing up, right? It's not just that I'm, well, I'm queer and so I was destined to break these rules. Everyone did. Um, and you get to see each person kind of pick and choose what thing that there is going to be their, like, absolute red line that they're never going to do or... Uh, you know, uh, what they're going to be able to live with because they have to. Um, and so I'm very, very interested always in transgression, uh, that moment when you make the decision consciously and you're like, I'm going to do this. And the life and death authority of the uh, older relatives breaks uh, because they don't kill you uh, <laughs> the way that you thought that they would. They're not omniscient, you know? They, they don't know everything. Um, yeah, so I, I always find that to be an incredibly generative space for writing. Yeah, and I think there was this passage which I have to read, um, which it kind of... I think encapsulated this idea of taboo and boundaries um, where, um, you know, Jamal says, now he knew it was easy to lie when you were no longer alive. Earlier that night, he had knelt and died. He had sucked a dick into his mouth, putting another boy into raptures, and he wanted to do it again. This life, this world was already over, and nobody but he knew that he had crossed an uncrossable line. There were all ghosts still operating by the old rules while he had become a new being. Mm -hmm. you, can keep, you can read the whole book too. Like, <laughs> Believe me, the, both books are highlighted <laughs> extensively. Um, yeah, and I guess, um, George, you know, I, I did want to um, talk to you about, you know, you not only write about men so beautifully, but women so beautifully. And Tata Elaine is such a beautifully drawn character, um, just exquisite. And she could have so easily been 2D, you know, and you just painted her with so much complexity. Um, she's not this desexualized older woman, but she's, you know, a woman who survived a marriage she didn't choose, a woman who finds a job as a young immigrant woman, a woman who kisses a co-worker at the factory she works at and falls in love, um, a woman who wants to protect Joey but is also furious with him. Um, how did you paint such an incredible character? What was the inspiration for Tata? How did you do this? Uh Women is uh, writing about women or thinking about women or knowing women is probably one of my um, uh, fortes only because I've spent so much time with them. And then, uh, of course, I'm gay. Uh, so, uh, she, Elaine is, is probably the, the, a character that I've written that's the closest to my heart uh, because she's very much modeled on my mom and my auntie and women that they interact with. Um, and I think I always, there was this poignant moment in, in my own childhood 
uh, I was uh, I was thinking about things uh, way too early, but there was there was a moment where I looked at my mum and I realised that she had been a baby and a toddler and a teenager. She'd had her first experience with sex. She'd you know uh, had all of these experiences. We often think of our parents as being who they are, just uh, as we know them, and I think that informed a lot of writing about Elaine for me is that these women that we, I don't, I don't want to say take for granted, but that we kind of maybe don't spend enough time thinking about the, their background because they're doing so much in the foreground, have their own ways of life, have their own intricacies, have their own memories. And my mum is a, you know, she's the typical uh, Lebanese mum who as long as everything's okay, she's fine. You know, she's not going to tell you that she's feeling like shit today. She just wouldn't do it. It's not a thing. And so I wanted Elaine to kind of maybe take that space and, and fill those gaps up. It's such genius, honestly, like the way you write about the worlds of men and the worlds of women too. Um, and, and, and you just, I, I think you both um, have, have benefited from being kind of outsiders in a particular world and also being embraced in the worlds of women and seeing their secrets too. Um, I guess this is a, you can answer this how you will. It's something that I worry about sometimes, you know. Um, I guess sometimes when you're a minority writer, writing in, in the mainstream, um, is there a fear of, um, you know, how is this going to be received? Or what is this going to say? Um, because I know, Omar, you were saying, like, the greatest the greatest honour you can do to a community or a world is just to be honest and say the truth about its complexity. But I was wondering if that's something that, that you struggled with a lot or you just have to bypass that that kind of fear. Um, we're going to be misinterpreted. Mm -hmm. It's an inevitability as far as I'm concerned. Um, and, uh, you know, not received uh, the way that we should be that's how I think of it. Um, and so I don't care too much about that side of it. Um, I go, they're going to do what they're going to do. Uh, it's, it's fine. Um, I need to make sure that I write in such a way that uh, I'm happy with it. You know what I mean? Like, I am my own worst demon. And so I actually never succeed, as far as I'm concerned, uh, with any book I write. I really do look at them all as failures, um, but interesting failures, and ones that I can learn from so that I'm hopefully better for the next one. Uh, yeah, so it's just about your own integrity uh, and and writing and, and living in such a way that reflects your values. Yes. George, was that a struggle also for you at all in, in, in writing and, and how it's going to be received or, or fear of perpetuating anything negative but knowing that life is negative? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, I'm much the same like Omar in that uh, as long as, you know, I've done my bit and I'm proud of the work, then once it becomes public, you know, I, I can't control what people think uh, about it or how they respond to it. And I actually don't really care about doing that. You know, that's not the point of why I, I, I write or, uh, you know, perform any kind of craft. Uh, but 
I did have a kind of little niggling thought when I was writing Losing Face that I hope no one, you know, thinks that I'm writing to any kind of stereotypes uh, because it's not, you know, very um, helpful to perpetuate stereotypes. But uh, I kind of, uh, you know, dealt with that by realising or thinking about how so much of the characters uh, in Losing Face are actually based on people that I know and interactions with people that I, I, I know. And so if it ends up acting or, or sounding like a stereotype, I know that it's not. So I'm okay with that. Yes, 100%. And I feel like racism has done its job when you are not gifted the luxury of being complex. You know, just like mm. every other human being in you know, a complex and messy and wild and beautiful and awful, you know, and, um, and thank you so much both for creating these works of art that do that, that reflect reality in that way. Um, so if we, if we have time, I think we do, um, George, I was wondering if you could read some, uh, sure. an excerpt from your book. Uh, for the first time in a long time, he didn't stem his tears, his voice cracked. He focused on the airbag sign on the dashboard as he spoke. I'm in this constant spiral, trying to validate my innocence and then seeing that as absolutely trivial compared to what Lisa had to go through. I, I wish I could talk to her or something. I want to know where she's at. I want to know why she didn't implicate Kiri and me as much in the report. I mean, Kiri left. He didn't even touch her, but we were there. We didn't stop it. Why didn't you stop it? Emma was almost whispering. I can't say it. I can't. If I say it, then I'll believe it. I'll be, I'll be just like them. What do you mean? He took a deep breath. M, there was no struggle. And before you think it, I'm not trying to say there, that for it to be a rape. She had to be fighting because I'm not. But in the moment, I didn't know it or it didn't occur to me enough. And, and I was scared. Emma reached out her hand towards him, but then placed it on the handbrake. I was scared of Boxer and has, Joey said. They sat in silence for a few minutes, the revelation of his fear quietening everything in the world. They're the only guys I know, and they're backwards as fuck, and I've spent so long sucked into their void because of where I was born, grew up, went to school. Emma spoke slowly. Joey, you're a good person. She probably saw that in you and didn't want you to get in trouble. His tears started up again. But I'm not. I'm not a good person. I'm a fool. I'm a weakling who couldn't stop it. And my lawyer says I have a good chance of getting off scot-free. He hadn't expected to pour this much out. I don't know what to say, she mumbled. No one does. How are you? How are your mum and Alex? Good, confused. Mum avoids me. Alex has gone really quiet and my dad's back, so that's made it all the more confusing. Shit. Turns out he's a criminal too. What? He ran over a cyclist like 15 years ago when he was drink driving. He was in jail for a long time. He's been out a few years. Mum used to see him when he first went in, but apparently he ended up on drugs and she broke it off. Shit, that's brutal. Yep. What's he like now? Clean, off the drugs, basic. He could tell Emma was itching to say something. Joey, mum and dad don't want me to see you anymore. He was cut. More cut than when she blocked his number. And you're an obedient little girl all of a sudden? Well, I still live with them. I need to kind of respect what they say. You're not a child, Em. You're almost 20 for fuck's sake. Yeah, so are you, and look where you are. So Emma had thought he was a complete flop this whole time. They had barely made eye contact since getting in the car, 
but now he was really craning his neck away from her as he said, your parents are just like everybody else. Maybe they are. And you know what, Emma? You're just like everybody else too. Emma laughed and started the car. When are you going to drop this me against the world bullshit, Joey? Look around you, she gestured with, gestured with her arms. You're a dime a fucking dozen. He slammed the door on his way out. Emma made a too fast U-turn, mounted the curb and sped away. Thank you so much. Thanks. And George's book is just filled with incredible passages like that. It just, the whole book needs to be read, honestly, like out there loud. Um, so many spoilers in that. You guys have to buy oh, his book now. Oh, it's not I'm fair. So sorry. Like, <laughs> oh, God, I didn't think of that. <laughs> I did think that as I was okay. reading it. Give <laughs> it um, all away, bro. <laughs> Just forget, I'm, I'm addicted forget. to this work, honestly. Um, okay, so Omar, if you could read that passage. And if there's a spoiler, just please, yeah, refrain from that section. You're getting one paragraph. Okay. Jamal wanted so much to tell him about Bilal, but he couldn't. They still had a year left at Liverpool Boys where faggot and gay got shouted every day and anything remotely feminine was met with scorn and violence. When Jamal had started carrying books everywhere, he got his fair share of shit, but it lessened as he grew taller and his beard came in, making him at least look the part of a man, which carried weight among the still beardless boys. Illo talked over the silence, tapping ash from the end of his cigarette. You know, my dad wanted me to be a footy player, even before I got big. Every weekend, I'd be out there on the field, fucking hating every minute of it. I'd try to avoid it, but sometimes I'd get the ball, and then I'd just stand there while they jump me. Like, seriously, who wants to get hit for fun? And then he'd bash me when we got home anyway for embarrassing him. The impulse to make a joke hit Jamel. A need to return or undo what he'd just been given, this quiet, hurt part of his friend, because he didn't know where or how to put it alongside his own pain, the stories that bubbled up in response. He pictured Illo's dad, a man larger than them both, a solid mass of muscle with a protruding gut over his floral eye, hitting little Illo with his oaken arms, and fury coursed through him. The force of it was shocking, a heat pulsing through the dense fog of his mind until there was no fog, only the clarity of rage. That's fucked, Jamel said. Fuck those guys. Fuck him and fuck footy too. Amen, Illo said and giggled. He rested his arm on Jamel's shoulder and they leaned a little closer together bound by a thin ribbon of smoke. Thank you so much, um, both. Um, we have some time for questions. If anyone has any questions, please just come to the microphones. Um, if you have any questions at all? Yeah, awesome. <clears throat> um, having Grown up, living, currently working in Western Sydney, having worked at your old high school. Mm. Um, obviously, after oh, you this. left. I don't know what you heard, but they're lies. They did yeah, nothing. Um, how much of the, the bro identity do you both believe is an escape of the complex trauma of everyday life 
as a rebellion for strength or is just a way to conform to be part of a group? And how do we go about breaking it down? Yeah, thank you for that question. It's a really I mean, good one. There's a lot in that. Um, I don't think it's all about trauma or, uh, you know, the experiences we had um, as specific to our community, right? Because it's the way I see it anyway, is that a lot of the boys that we grew up with were emulating an Australian masculinity, right? Um, and, you know, puberty blues. Larrikinism. Larrikinism. Uh, this contempt for women is rooted deep in Australian culture um, and our culture as well. Um, and so it does, maybe that double bind uh, is part of what makes it so intense. Um, in addition to feeling like we have to uh, form up uh, together in defense um, against the hostility that we kind of face every single day. And then if you're forming up in defense, right, how do you turn away from your brother? How do you have space for criticism or what will be experienced as rejection. How do you be vulnerable when you're in a migrant community um, that's under attack? It's incredibly difficult, is what I would say. Um, but that doesn't mean it shouldn't be done. I think that's very much the work that we're trying to do think so. And even, you know, in that, if we're talking about teenagers, there isn't this kind of consciousness of these kinds of these topics and these ways of, of theorizing or thinking or coming to, you know, some kind of understanding around it. So maybe it's up to adults to try and kind of have those conversations, open those spaces uh, to try and dissipate that bro identity um, if it is toxic. If not, then whatever, go be a bro, like have fun. Why not? Like, <laughs> But, you know, if, if it is hurting people, then sure, let's, let's, let's talk about it and let's uh, kind of try, try and create some pathways out of it. Thank you so much. That's brilliant. Um, yep, one more question. We have time for one more. Mabruk, mabruk, mabruk. Uh, George Thank and you. Omar, I was going to ask in the question in Arabic, but I'm makhluto, so I'll go with English. <laughs> uh, so your words have written on my identity as a psychologist working with queer folks across many intersectionalities. And in light of your lived experience, what words of wisdom would you offer our children, our queer children, who are police on multiple levels inside and outside the home? And also, when you now consciously live this life, what is the sort of life you want to live and the legacy you want to leave for others? There's a few layers there. Yeah. <laughs> a few layers. Ooh, well, easy one to end <laughs> on, man. Complicated and intense okay, well, question. I guess starting with, you know advice for, yeah. for young kids like you yeah. you were coming up 
Your legacy is your work, I think. Um, but I, I would say so, and I think that that's what's happening uh, kind of without even uh, us trying. Um, you know, that's, that's, that is what is happening. I had a conversation with my sister yesterday on the phone. So I have nine nephews and nieces who range, uh, range in age from nine months old to 18, uh, and they don't know that I'm gay. Uh, the rest of the family knows, but they don't. And I had this conversation with my sister, and she was like, uh, this is the sister who she's currently pregnant but doesn't have her own kids yet. Uh, and she said, um, if they ask me, I'm telling them. She said, and I told the other sisters that if the, if the kids ask, is Uncle George gay? I'm saying yes, that, yes, he is. Uh, and I feel like as much as I'd love to be this kind of public queer, uh, you know, persona that people can look up to, there are kind of intricacies that play out on this level where you can't control. Uh, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with the work doing the thing. If someone reads this work and says, I see myself in it, it's given me something to think about or a little glimmer of hope, then gorgeous, amazing, love it. Yeah, um, I think my advice would be to, ah, oh, man, it's hard. <laughs> It's really difficult, right? Because there is a, almost this pressure to be like, you need to come out. Uh, and this is a, this is a white narrative mm. um, because it does not take into account the lack of a queer Arab uh, community or queer Arab Muslim community, um, what are we coming out into? More danger, well, exactly. more risk. Amara, I have this idea that um, we invite people to come in to our lives rather yeah. than the coming out. You selectively choose who is precious enough to know about your life rather than this um, kind of pressure That's and right. it's not safe enough that is a privileged position and this is this Absolutely. is something that George has done in his life and I've done in mine in very similar ways um, because the risk is real and the danger is real exactly. in our community and so um, it's about knowing what your situation is um, and being careful I think being patient but also you know for myself I was so much more afraid of my family than I needed to be. This is what I have discovered Same. since, right? Is, and this is what I mean when I say be aware of your family, be aware of their conditions, you know, what space are they in? Um, how capable are they of hearing what you have to say and being able to support you? I grew up with a single mom on drugs. Like, the conversation was not happening. Uh, I had to get out and then make sure, I only came out to her uh, last year, right? And that's how long it took for me to be financially independent and secure enough to have the conversation with her because by this point I know that she relies on me more than I rely on her. And this is the kind of strategic awful family dynamics that you have to take into account um, 
when when thinking about this. So there's so many factors. It's really complex. Um, but love your family and trust that if you give them enough time, they will love you the way that you love them. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for the question too. Um, I just want to thank so much our panellists. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Honestly, um, thank you so much um, for sharing so much of yourselves um, and just that complicated navigation that your books encompass so well and also in your own personal stories. I um, really appreciate it. So just uh, a reminder, there will be copies of Losing Face by George Haddad, if you could put the book up. Yes. Uh, so make sure that you get a copy, get it signed. George will be available afterwards. Um, and also Omar Saka, Son of Sin. Um, and also my own book is coming out on August 30. Yes. Um, yeah, pre-order. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, thank pre you. Pre-order. Um, yeah, Desi Girl on Race, Feminism, um, Faith and Belonging. So that will be available online. So thank you so much, guys, and have a great day. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.